Well, we're continuing in our study of Philippians. We've come to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We've turned the page, so to speak. Um, and as I was thinking about this and I'm talking to folks, I, I recognize that you know, every time that we come to the Word of God in this point in the service, really, there's nothing actually that falls outside of this, but every time we come to this, we have... God's Word for us today. This is God's providential Word for us today. And I say that because sometimes we don't always see how it's providential, right? We don't always see exactly how it fits with why we need this Word today. But today, it seems rather clear. Um, uh, you know, reading God's providence isn't... It's, not easy. Sometimes you ask, why, Lord? Why does this have to happen? Or why is this happening? And oftentimes we don't get any good answers. Uh, why is God doing this? But as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, a text that compels us to humbly love one another, I find it a timely word for us. You all saw my email, or hopefully you did, and I, I, I found the governor's decrees to be difficult, potentially damaging. You read that in my letter, but I said it was also an opportunity for us to, in the face of whatever trial we face, to display love and humility and care for one another. And in God's providence, he brought up the text that may best summarize this call. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I did not coordinate this. This was God's hand of providence. So, with that, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Let's read God's Word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop right there, but I want you to know going forward what this mind of Christ is, is that glorious passage that we'll look at next week. It is about the humiliation, the, the kenosis, Christ emptying himself, if you will, veiling himself of glory, becoming like us, taking on flesh, becoming a servant, suffering and dying on a cross for us, and then of course, him being raised up and highly exalted and given the name that's above every name. So that's the mind of Christ that is spoken of here in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have that mind of Jesus amongst yourselves. That's a radical thing. We'll look at that uh, as we get toward the end of this sermon. But before we do that, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in humility, recognizing that we are not omniscient, that you are the God who upholds all things by the word of your power, 
And so we turn to you for wisdom, and we turn to you for help, that you would help us not only understand, but to apply your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to beat around the bush too much this afternoon. And you know my plea uh, that I put out there to press on together in love. I want to tell you, in many ways, this sermon is for the church. Philippians, the letter, was written to the church, and this section particularly geared to the church. It doesn't mean if you are not a believer, if you are a seeker, if you are somebody who's looking on from the outside that you can't learn something about the gospel. In fact, I hope the gospel comes out quite clearly, but this is a call to the church here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. In God's providence, he brought a pandemic to bear on the entire world and all the challenges of navigating uh, all the various ethical and social and political conundrums that we have faced over the course of this past year and plus. And whenever there's something difficult in life, we might rightly ask, what is God doing? Like, what is he doing? If we know that he's sovereign, that he rules over all things, what in the world is he doing? I think I ask that question a lot. And often we do not get full answers, right? Occasionally we do, but oftentimes we don't. So we get frustrated. I don't know what the Lord is doing. (laughs) Even as we face difficult government regulations. But I think we need to have a conversation as a church on what it means to humbly love one another in this fraught time. And I need to hear this. I personally need to hear this. Uh, And and as a confession to you, I've struggled over the course of this this year, not to impugn motives, not to make presumptions of people, not to judge others. I don't know about you, but for me, I've said in my heart at different points, different things, right? I've said, you're not loving. That person is just not loving. Or that person is so fearful. Why are they living in such fear? Maybe you've done this too. I've done it (laughs) maybe even one word after the other. I'm confessing this to you. And honestly, it's strange relationships in my life. I've shied away from difficult conversations. Meanwhile, in my heart, I've more and more convinced myself that I'm right. I know I'm right, because that's what I do. And whoever they are at the moment, they're wrong. Have you done this? I've done this. I've become conceited, prideful, moving towards judgment and resentment. I confess this to you as a broken sinner. And underlying my self-righteous conceit is an even greater failure in my mind. It's my failure to humbly love. 
And I would suggest that this trial that we have faced over the course of the past year plus, this test that the Lord has put before us in the way of a pandemic is meant to burn away that dross of pride and conceit and selfish ambition. It's meant to expose our idols so that we might learn what it means to lay down our lives in love. Paul is writing to his close friends in Philippi. He's very grateful for this church. He thinks very highly of them. But he's concerned that they are not... He's concerned that there is that seed of discord. That there, that there are a problem that's just under the surface. That if it isn't dealt with, if it isn't nipped in the bud, right? I'm not a planter, but I know you got to cut things back. My mom's always chopping things off at plants and got to cut it back so that there's growth. If we're not constantly doing that, then that seed of discord threatens the peace of the church. And so Paul's attempting to do that. He's attempting to nip it in the bud, and he exhorts them here, humbly love just as you have been humbly loved. That's kind of the argument here. If you take all of uh, 2, 1 to, uh, uh, one to 13, or 1 to 11, he's saying love, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, love, humbly love one another just as you have been humbly loved. And, and this is my desire for all of us here at CCPC, for my own heart, that I would learn this, that the dross would be burned away, that we would learn to love one another. And we'll look at this in three parts. First, the glue of God. The glue of God. Second, our common joy. And finally, landing on that humble love. What does it look like? First, the glue of God. So, glue of God, common joy, humble love. The glue of God. I realize that it's a strange way of putting it, uh, but it's the heartbeat of the text. Um, it, the, it's this idea of union, of, of being bound and the question is, what is it that binds us together? What is it that binds us? What, what's the glue that binds us together? And, and I think this is a question that we have all asked over the course of the past year and a half or so. What, what binds us together? What do I have in common? Now, we might say to ourselves as we're sitting alone in our house and we're distanced from one another and we haven't spent much time together, things like that. We might start to ask the question or say, you know what? They don't share the same interests as me. They don't have the same history as me. They're not of the same political bent as me. They don't like the same music as me. They don't even like the same worship style as me. Maybe they have different educational philosophies than me. Maybe they aren't the same ethnicity or skin color as me. Maybe they don't understand my experience. Maybe they aren't my age or my gender or whatever you have, whatever have you. Maybe they seemingly don't even have the same sort of ethical grounds or compass. And we start to ask the question, what holds us together? I think over the course of the year, it's been easy to start to distance one another. It starts easy to disengage and sort of drift apart. 
and in an age that actually, I think, highlights differences and encourages tribalism, I mean, that's the world we live in. What is, who are you? This is your identity. You fit into this category. You're over here. And we're going to identify ourselves in these categories. That's what the world does. It wants to kind of distinguish everyone from one another. That's the world we live in. I think we are, as a church, facing a great challenge. And I don't mean church, CCPC. I just mean church, generally. The things that unite us. But Paul opens up his exhortation with this if-then paradigm. He says, if this, if this, if this, then this. If these things are true, then this is how we should act. And Paul uses, it's quite a rhetorical style. He clearly is getting excited, right? He's piling up the ifs. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if, he doesn't say if there, but keep the if going, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the, uh, in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, piling it up, then do X. It's meant to bowl us over. Uh, it made me think of uh, Presbytery, and Presbytery is, you know, it's the gathering of elders who meet quarterly or so uh, to discuss the issues of the church, and occasionally we make overtures. We make these overtures to change some aspect of the church. We send them up to the General Assembly. We overture the General Assembly, and in those overtures, we have, there's usually, the, the overture is very small. Uh, it's short. But about a page and a half before the overture is this whole section of whereases. Whereas this, whereas this, whereas, 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 whereas. So that the goal is when the, the assembly comes together, they're bowled over by the grounds for the change, whatever the change, the overture might be. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. But it is not just done for rhetorical effect. There is substance to the grounds that Paul has here that are massive, I think. Massive. I want us to notice something. There is, I think, a Trinitarian structure to these first three grounds. Notice, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Now, I recognize that God the Father is not explicitly mentioned. I see that. His name is not mentioned. Um, but I want us just to look here very briefly at Paul's benediction in 2 Corinthians. It's a very similar structure and form. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And come back to our text. Comfort from, or, or I'm sorry, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, and uh, participation in the Spirit. This is the massive piece that I don't want us to miss. Paul is saying that our union, our oneness, is grounded in our relationship to the triune God of heaven and earth. That, do not miss it. Let's, let's just pull it apart a little bit. What does it mean to receive encouragement in Christ? What does that mean? What does it mean? 
Paul loves this expression, in Christ. If you go through his letters, he uses it all the time. He says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over again. Everything is in Christ. And he uses this expression to describe that union that we have with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the benefits that we receive from Christ. And so in Romans 6, 6 11, it says, we are alive in Christ, meaning we have new life in Christ. Secondly, just a few verses later in Romans 6, it says we enjoy eternal salvation in Christ. Our salvation is because of our union with Christ. Later in Romans, in chapter 8, he says, there is therefore now no more condemnation in Christ. You are no longer condemned because you are united to Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says, you are sanctified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, you receive grace in Christ. I could go on and on and on and look at all the passages that Paul has to say, all the benefits that are ours from our union with Christ. But what I want us to think about is just this. What an encouragement is to know that we have all those benefits because of our union with Christ. Secondly, he says, if you have any comfort from the love of God the Father... Knowing that God loved us while we were yet sinners, that he set his affection on us. I think this ought to bring us sweet comfort to know that before the very foundations of the world, he set his affection on us and said, you are mine. That love and steadfastness, that chesed of the Old Testament, for God so loved that he gave his only son. Knowing that God loved us is sweet comfort to us. And then he goes on, Paul says, if you have any participation in the Spirit, we are indwelt by God's Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means He's the, the Spirit who comforts, who encourages, who convicts, who prays for, who sanctifies, who empowers us, who enlightens our hearts, who gives us life. We participate with the Spirit. We have perfect fellowship. Friends, if you've experienced union and communion with the triune God who has, in fact, bound you to Himself, this triune God who Himself enjoys perfect fellowship within the, tr the Trinity, who, who knows perfect love, it, this is what Paul's saying. If you, if you enjoy these things, then, but not yet. There was one more. I don't know if you noticed. He says, if there's any affection and sympathy. Paul adds one more if. One more experience that is ours as Christians. He says, if you have any affection and sympathy. And I think Paul here is expressing their experience of affection and sympathy for him. Right? They sent Epaphroditus. They have deep love for Paul. They're united to him by spirit. They, they, they want to make sure he's encouraged. They have sympathy for the situation he's in. He's saying, if you, you know, you know the experience that we have together as brother and sister in Christ. He's making a personal appeal. He's saying, if you know what it is to have affection and sympathy for me as your fellow Christian, or for that matter, if you've experienced that amongst yourselves at all at any point then now we're going to look at the then in just a second but before we get there I just want to challenge us with the truths that I've just described brothers and sisters 
We are all partakers of the triune God together for all, for all eternity. This is not an if in the sense of a maybe. This is an if in the sense of a certainty. We are bound together by the love of God, the Father, through Christ and the participation of the Holy Spirit. You know, glues are a, a funny thing. I've used a lot in my day for various things, epoxies, very strong glues. And honestly, every glue I've ever come across experientially can break down. If you get enough, uh, what, what, what do you say, enough wind, weather, water, glues, they just, they don't last. Sun, heat, something can break down the bond, right? Even the strongest of epoxies that can break those things down. Friends, there is no bond so strong or so permanent as the bond that is ours in this triune God of heaven and earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, stop there for a minute, because I'm not naive enough to think that brothers and sisters in Christ can't be so divided that in this life we may not see reconciliation. I know this experientially. But I will say, whether you like it or not, even with that person that you have this irreconcilable difference, you are bound for all eternity together, one sinner to another. If you look to the person to your left or to your right, you're going to heaven with them. They're, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, if they believe, if they have faith, then you are connected for all eternity with them. And because of that, I want to challenge you. Maybe we can't disassociate ourselves because we have a difference of opinion. Remember, Christ associated with those who did not like him. Not, not only did they not like him, they hated him. They rejected him. Christ associated with them. Christ laid down his life for us. He endowed us with the same spirit. He's given it to us, broken sinners, and given us the spirit that binds us together for eternity. And so if you are so glued, that if that's the case, then we can share with enjoy together. Um, we have a common joy together. And that's my second point. Joy is it, it, one of those elusive things, right? You have these moments of elation where you're so happy and it seems to fizzle through your fingers. Before you know it, you're, you're down in the dumps <laughs> and you're thinking, is, where is my joy? Joy is a hard thing to come by. In these strange times, it feels especially challenging to find. We've seen throughout this letter how Paul is overflowing with joy and will eventually tell the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. But here he makes a really strange conclusion to this if statement, this if-then statement. He says, if you are in fact a partaker of the triune God together and have experienced affection and sympathy for me, he says, then complete my joy. Wait, what, Paul? That seems very self-centered. That seems odd on the face of it. Really, Paul, is it all about your joy? 
But I, I don't think this is really a very a fair reading of Paul at, at this point. Uh, who in the very previous chapter didn't care whether he had lived or died. Who found joy even when people preached Christ out of rivalry and envy. You'll remember that. He, did, he, didn't, he didn't rejoice just because he was gaining some sort of glory. He rejoiced in Christ. Paul was not interested in self-service. Quite the opposite. His joy, as we've already seen, is in seeing Christ proclaimed and magnified. Whether in the extension of the proclamation of the gospel, or in this case here, in their unity, their oneness. The joy that he's talking about is the joy that is found in rejoicing that Christ brings together broken sinners and that they are bound and they have come together with one mind contending together for the faith. That's the joy, is seeing Christ at work binding us one to another. The filling up of Paul's joy means that Christ is exalted by the oneness of the Philippian church. And this is how Paul puts it. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I have to stop here. Does this mean there is only joy insofar as we all think exactly alike? So, if you're a Trekkie, this will ring true. If you're not a Trekkie, this illustration will fall and you will be like, he's just an odd duck. But for you Trekkies out there, what Paul is saying is this is not the Borg. So... Okay, nobody's a Trekkie. All right. All right. I'll explain. There, there was a bad, the bad guy in Trekkie, anyway, bad thing. It was this large cybernetic collective that was attempting to assimilate Captain Picard and the crew of the Enterprise. That's the next generation, for those of you who have lost my reference. And in the Borg, there's no room for disagreement, distinction, or difference of opinion. Everybody thinks and acts the same and says the same. That is one unit. I don't think this is what the Apostle Paul means when he talks about unity. He's not talking about unity and some, uh, some absolute like similarity that we all think identically. Paul's joy, I think what he's talking about here, is a joy of a mindset that views Christ and his kingdom as the ultimate aim of all of us, that we are united by one faith, one hope, one Lord. Another way of putting this is to say that in our very real disagreements with one another, we've got to keep perspective. Perspective. We ought to be able to have a robust dialogue or debate, speaking truth to one another in love, holding our convictions with humility, or in humility, changing your convictions. But in all of it, bearing with one another in love and not breaking that bond of peace. It's seeing and understanding which things are primary and which things are secondary. I remember for a class that I was teaching from my old church on church history, I was doing some research and I was reading 
about the history of Presbyterianism in Western Pennsylvania and in Pittsburgh. And in that, I, there was lots of things that were kind of interesting and little nuggets of, I was in the library at um, Carnegie Mellon and I was just reading all these different uh, things. And I, 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 uh, I came across this story it was a notation, a small notation about a small Presbyterian church that in the early 1800s split. Now, this is not uncommon, right? Presbyterian churches splitting. Unfortunately, it's part of our history. But this church split in particularly struck, particular struck me because what they split over was the kind of metric, so metrical psalms is a way of singing just the Psalter, right? It's how they break the Psalter into phrases to be able to sing, to be able to sing. It's called metrical psalmody. And they split over the type of meter that they were going to sing. Friends, that's ridiculous, right? That's absolutely ridiculous. And it grieves me to think about that the, that our forebears, my own history, was splitting over this. But then I thought about this. When in 200 years historians look back at the church in America and they see church splits over wearing masks or not, or getting vaccine or not, I wonder if they too will say, how embarrassing. I'm not saying we're there, but I'm just highlighting this. Look, what is central? What are, what are we united to? What is the core of our faith? I'm not saying these aren't real disagreements. I'm not even saying we can't differ, that we can't have robust dialogue. But at the end of the day, I'm saying, what is our union about? How are we united? Let me challenge you on this. I think our commitment to Scripture... And the apostolic faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, which proclaims Christ and Him crucified, is the hill to die on. That's our hill. We can plant our flag there. I will die there. We might have disagreements and debates and love concerning the prudence of these things, but at the end of the day, we must treat one another with love, and as we will see in a minute, this means in humility considering those with whom we disagree as more significant than ourselves. And here's the amazing thing. As we do this, as we come together, as we rally around the things of first priority, as we genuinely love those with whom we disagree, we will find joy. This to me is... is, is part of the magnificence of the gospel, that God brings together broken sinners from every walk of life and every tribe and tongue and makes a people for himself so that, as Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This, to me, is a miracle of the gospel because, honestly, the church displays a unity that the world cannot grasp. That people with diverse backgrounds, with differences of opinion, with strong political leanings one way or another can come together and worship the living God in Jesus Christ. And in this we rejoice. In this truth, my joy, my personal joy is filled up knowing that I am united to you all. And so 
This is my prayer, that we would have this same mindset. We would have this common joy that we are one in Christ. But honestly, this truth is also platitudinal. If we don't put some feet to it, if we're unwilling to come together and humble ourselves. And this brings me to my final point and conclusion. Friends, we are called to humble love. Paul opens with a negative here as he makes things more practical. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or vain conceit. The way the world works and the way the church works are quite the opposite, aren't they? The way the world works is to fight for power and glory. The way of the cross is to lay down one's life. In that sense, humility is a curiously Christian character trait. I'm not suggesting that people in the world don't have humility. Don't, don't hear me on that. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of uniquely in some way grown up out of the Christian faith. Jesus says in the gospel that the meek shall inherit the earth, or that the way of glory is the way of the cross, or that to, in fact, live, to, to find life, is to die to self. Mark 8. And this is a really offensive aspect of the gospel. For to believe the gospel is to acknowledge your weakness and sin and inability to save yourself and to rest and rely on another to save you. In other words, there is no place for selfish ambition in the Christian life. Do nothing from selfish ambition. This is radical. It's radical because think about it, it's baked into the American dream. Being right, being in the know, being at the head, being in charge, being smart, being well-liked, standing out, having the right friends and connections, avoiding certain associations that might reflect poorly on you. That's, that's, a, that's the American way right there. And Paul goes on and says, do nothing out of conceit. As, as we wrestle together, and I think we ought to over different issues, as we wrestle together, as we come together, do you need to be right? Do you need to win the argument? I'll confess, sometimes I find myself in arguments where I just want to win. My wife can attest to this. To my shame. What happens when you don't win the argument? What happens if you're wrong? What happens if they're wrong and yet they don't back down? Paul says we in humility are to count others more significant than ourselves. We're to look out for their good, for their well-being. It's more important than yours. What does this look like? Okay, put feet to this. It means serving one another. It means taking time, time that we don't have, to listen to one another, to care for one another. It means overlooking offense. It means forgiving one another. It means not thinking first about the injustices done to you, but to consider how to protect and defend others around you. Right? I think we're so quick to defend ourselves. What is it to look like to defend one another? It means swallowing pride, confessing sin, seeking forgiveness. It means bearing with one another in their weakness. It means assuming the best. This idea of charity, right? 
I'm going to have a charitable disposition towards somebody. It means I'm not going to assume I know exactly what they're thinking. But how many times do we go into our bedroom and run through the conversation in our head with somebody before we have it? And so that when we come to meet them in person, we have all sorts of assumptions of what they're going to say. And then when we, when we come at them, we come at them hard. And then all of a sudden we realize, oh, they thinking, they're thinking a different direction. I made all these assumptions about you. I've made judgments. Charity. It means assuming the best and not the worst intentions of people. Think about that. How often do I just think the worst intention of somebody? Well, they mu- they're doing this, so they must think this because their intention is this. How- Am I the only one? I hope I'm not the only one. Okay. How often in our minds do we shape opinions about people and motives? It means laying down our rights. It means laying down our lives. It means forgiving one another and not holding sins against each other. It means being okay when you don't get things your way. It means not having to win arguments and be right. It means admitting when you might be wrong or having the humility to say, I don't know. Let me consider. It means not just thinking about your own interests, but also the interests of others. Wow. That's an overwhelming task. One that I fail at on a regular basis. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This, friends, is the gospel. This is where I come and I get overwhelmed because I look at Jesus who didn't consider the fact that he had all knowledge, all glory, all power. He had perfect union and communion with the Heavenly Father. He sat on the throne of heaven. He did not consider that but humbled himself. He took on our broken flesh. Why? To die for sinners who thought they knew better than God. That's overwhelming. And the Apostle Paul says, have this mind. What mind? The mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kind of mindset that says, Even if my brother or sister is sinning against me, I'm going to love them and lay my life down for them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to bear with them. I'm going to listen to them. And even if we can't come to an agreement, I'm going to stay with them, bound to heaven for all eternity. We don't have the luxury as Christians to say, well... You're not part of my tribe anymore. We are. Bound for eternity. And how are we bound? Because the Lord of glory humbled himself for you and laid his life down for you and knit himself and bound himself to you that you might enjoy fellowship with the triune God and fellowship with one another.
Friends, let's humble ourselves, considering others more significant. Let's pray.